Welcome to Media Path. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Our guest on the show today has carved a media path that is vast and long and paved with her music. Beautiful people, lay down candles in the rain, look what they've done to my song, Ma, brand new key, all written and performed by Melanie. And straight from your heart and your record collection, Melanie is about to join us right here on this podcast. But first, Fritz and I like to run reconnaissance over the media landscape for you and select a few gems that we think you'll enjoy. So, Fritz, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to talk about a mini series on Amazon Prime this week. It's a spy among friends. This is an espionage thriller. It was a New York Times bestseller by Ben McIntyre, and it's a true story of Cold War intrigue. It's the story of Nicholas Elliott and Kim Philby, two British spies who were lifelong friends. Elliott was an intelligence officer for MI6, and Philby turned out to be one of the most notorious British defectors and Soviet double agents in history. It's the classic case of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Elliot's life is thrown into turmoil when he finds out that Philby has been working for the KGB and has defected to the Soviet Union. It's two of my favorite actors, Damian Lewis. If you're a fan of Billions, they're going to do one more run of those on Showtime. You're probably a fan of his too. And Guy Pierce, who's been an amazing actor in so many shows like Memento and LA Confidential and many more. It's a six-episode miniseries, and it's this great moral conundrum. If you have a really good friend and you discover Discover that they have a really dark secret that has potentially dangerous implications. How do you react and how does it change your life? Really good acting. Everything about it's cool. And it's British, so it has to be superior to everything. It just must be. Mm -hmm. Well, Fritz, I've been doing some reading. You always are. Jeanette McCurdy's book is provocatively titled, I'm Glad My Mom Died. That gets your attention, and when you click on the Amazon page, you quickly notice that the title has 46,000 five-star ratings. Jeanette is a former child star, and I must confess that I was not aware of her, but I am keenly interested in the experiences of child actors because I grew up enthralled with them, and then I worked with many child stars when I was a studio page, and I witnessed their challenges. As stressful as high-stakes sports and chess and spelling bees can be for a kid, acting is the one pursuit where your child may begin earning a salary that supports the family. And where the adult careers of actors, writers, producers, and technicians are all dependent upon your child's ability to effectively do her job. And beyond all of that pressure, many kids wind up in show business because it's their parents' dream. They begin auditioning when they are too young to form their own. Such is the case with Jeanette. Her mother is an abusive narcissist who crafts in Jeanette a child whose sole purpose is to please her mother. It's a toxic codependency that includes the mom teaching a 12-year-old Jeanette to restrict calories so that she can postpone the arrival of puberty. This is one of many crimes. Jeanette's worldview is entirely limited to subjugating her own emotional and physical development in the pursuit of her mother's happiness. Starved of the opportunity to create any self-regulating compass, Jeanette rapidly succumbs to eating disorders and substance abuse. Her journey towards health and clarity is heroic, and she is a gifted writer. Now, I must confess that I that I read most of the book believing that she was going to go on to become iCarly. She is on the show, yes, but she plays Sam, the best friend, and she must be a talented comic actor, but I have never seen iCarly, so... This book is my introduction to Jeanette, and I am very impressed. Dina, Mason, Nick, some of the younger folks, maybe you can tell us about the impact on your generation of iCarly. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, iCarly was probably one of the biggest, like, child 
centered sitcoms uh, of our generation. It was on for a few years, and uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that everybody watched. Uh, it was funny, it was enjoyable, and like so many uh, TV shows and movies featuring children, we did not really know what was going on behind the scenes, and, and uh, so many of those Nickelodeon TV shows had so many dark moments going on behind the scenes. And, and you know, uh, good point, Mason. You know, I, I'm always, it makes me queasy talking about the dark behind-the-scenes secrets with kids on TV shows. And we've had many guests on this show that that have had less than perfect experiences about that. And there are rumors about what went on, not only with iCarly, but Nickelodeon and Disney and behind the scenes stuff there. It just makes me so uncomfortable that these kids are still, even with all the Coogan rules and all that stuff, get manipulated. Yeah. Dina has some thoughts about Dan Schneider, because in the book, he's he is mentioned as the creator as if she's protecting herself from litigation but she doesn't even mention the name of the guy who was the executive producer of all these shows and i guess he was abusive um yes so unlike mason and i guess maybe nick i'm i'm older so um i was probably like in my mid-20s when iCarly was a big hit and um probably like a good 10 years or more older than like the target demographic but um I do know, you know, from like my extensive experience on the internet that <laughs> it is, um, you know, it's iconic for like that generation. And I think that the fact that it was so in the it, the 90s through like the late 2000s was like the age of like viral content mm -hmm. where like you would have um, like video clips or blog posts or maybe even websites that went viral and then you started to have in the late 2000s that was like the beginning of like the youtube star era mm -hmm. where you actually had like creators that became like hugely famous and it, beyond just like one piece of content that like everybody was sharing mm -hmm. um and iCarly just kind of started at that time when it was like the, that crossover was starting to happen. Right. Um, so that was really exciting for kids watching it. You know, maybe you guys can attest to that, that you could like a regular kid <laughs> could just become a star and like you're seeing like that like play out. Right. That was the first time that really ever happened. Um, and then in terms of Dan Schneider, I mean, I've heard many I've seen and heard many allegations against him. The fans of iCarly are, you know, um, don't mince words when it comes to talking about his many uh, misdeeds mm -hmm. and the things that he's been accused of. You know, he's, uh, Wheezy, you probably know better than me since you read the book, but I guess he, McCurdy feels like she was exploited highly by him. Yes. And, um, you he, know, he taken pit, advantage he, of. Yeah, he would pit people against each other. He would tell certain kids that he was their favorite or he'd tell all of them so that they'd all think that and, I don't know. He just had a sort of like a, um, a, a, I don't know if he was raised by parents that did this, where mm. you know people are pitted against each other so that he's the one with the most power. Nick. Yeah, and one real quick thing is that, you know, with iCarly, of course, it was like you're saying, it was like the first kind of look into how you could become famous on the internet. But I think the thing that because I grew up watching all of Dan Snyder before I didn't even know it was Dan Snyder. Sure. But 
that was what was on. Like that was Nickelodeon, Zoe 101, Drake and Josh, all these shows. And, and there were shows that incorporated the internet into their storylines. And even more so, I, f- I feel like those shows, just the thing that he was, because I, I didn't hear about all the everything on the dark side of Dan Schneider until later, but the thing that he was able to do so well was, and I don't know, Mace, if you agree with this, but just he was able to just tap in with like the... I don't know, the actual what felt authentic and like the lifeline of being a kid at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tween zeitgeist. My yeah. kids were all over that. And so what's interesting right, exactly, is, is yeah. about is to tie this in with Melanie is she was also a teenager when she was first launched into into stardom. So like, you know, before you've developed your full sense of self, you're all everyone's staring at you. And like, and that's an interesting dynamic. So we're going to go ahead and introduce Melanie, a musically gifted child. Melanie Safka went pro while still in her teens, gracing the New York City music and radio scenes in the late 60s and topping the charts with her first hit, Beautiful People. She became the darling of Europe on a celebrated tour. And at the age of 18, she came home to enchant a crowd of 500,000 at Woodstock, an experience which inspired her next triumphant anthem, Lay Down Candles in the Rain. Melanie's subsequent hits include What Have They Done to My Song, Ma, Ruby Tuesday, and Brand New Key. Her tunes have been covered by Ray Charles, the Count Basie Band, Nina Simone, and Queen Latifah. Melanie launched Neighborhood Records, making her the first American woman to open a mainstream record label. She recorded over 20 chart hits and has never stopped touring. Melanie has always known that she was born to perform, and she has been answering that calling for over 50 years. And it is our honor to welcome Melanie to the show. Greetings. So, Melanie, let me start by asking, you were always your own unique person, and the kids in school called you a beatnik. Do you remember how you acquired your aesthetic and your point of view, or do we all just come as we are to Earth? Yeah, I don't, I I think I was um, sort of plucked out of New York City by my parents' move to a very provincial area, New Jersey, Mm. and (laughs) Up until that point, I was just like everybody else, I felt. Okay. Um, but when I moved and I was in this other where everybody knew everybody since they were born, and I was just in there as the new kid, mm-hmm. um, somehow I acquired, um, you know, the beatnik thing. I had long hair and um, I'm not, you know, sometimes I think given the name, you play the game. And when you're a teenager, you you want to blend in somewhere, but I I just couldn't uh, didn't. So um, they yeah I was I had a hard uh, time adjusting. It was a bad time to move, you know, from New York to this area, and uh, because people perceived me as an oddball, um, I maybe ad- adapted uh, my persona you know to that you decided well, to you, you, you were a new type of performer too you were the first female solo guitar playing singer songwriter person type person and also you were coming forward with joan baez and janis joplin and women did not take center stage that often to that point and you were one of the first to do that yeah yeah and i, and I would just like to say one thing growing up and that's a good thing <laughs> yeah and you grew up but in a story of queens my um I guess my identity as an an oddball beatnik person uh, was formed there, and yeah, there weren't a girl. Girls didn't play guitars. Guitar was a guy thing, mm-hmm. oh. and um, 
it, it's it's amusing when you have this perspective from this end looking that way um that the um it's now it's you know anybody can play the guitar but um it was really an odd thing that uh, a woman even played the guitar growing up in my teens i guess joan baez was my idol and I wanted to be Joan Baez, and I had too grovelly a voice to pull that one off. Well, you guys worked <laughs> in Greenwich did. Village. Did you have a chance to work with her? And no, I. Um, in fact, till to this day, I have not met her in oh, person. My. Wow! But at Woodstock, I did have a a warm, cuddly Woodstock moment, and a lot of people just assume, you know, oh, you hung out with all these people at Woodstock. Well, I was such an introvert, but um, not only that, when I arrived at Woodstock, they put me in the, um, I guess it was kind of like the folky or lower echelon area <laughs> of backstage. They had a big tent where I imagine they had amenities because at some point, I, I kept waiting to be, you know, told that I was going on. And I, all I could think of the whole day was, how do I get out of here? How do I get out of here? I was all by myself in a little tent with a dirt floor and a box. And I developed this nervous, deep bronchial cough. And I imagined Joan Baez in the upper echelon tent must have heard the suffering a person and she sent over uh, her assistant or something. Uh, she said, hello, excuse me, Joan Baez. Well, she didn't even say Joan Baez. She said, Joan heard you coughing and thought you might like this. And it was a pot of tea with lemon and oh, honey. It was, oh, Joan, Joan, Joan Baez. <laughs> I mean, Joan Baez herself. <laughs> sent this over and uh you know she was always she was a goddess from then on <laughs> why why didn't you end up in the movie several acts that were at woodstock did not end up in the movie some of them because they did not want to give their rights to you know the guys that made the film no i think um that uh, even though i had um there was a big industry buzz about me a lot of the people in the industry didn't really see me as um, um, a star, I guess, you know, and mm -hmm. um, whatever, a celebrity. And I, I just kept going back to Europe where everything had begun. So uh, I just I didn't see the value of putting my name there yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it well, wasn't too... Woodstock too, I think. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you describe the day as being like eternal and wanting to just escape, but then it must have settled in. The experience must have settled into the point where you wrote uh, "Candles in the Rain." You must have seen, with some kind of perspective, the the importance of that day. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing that what happened to me that day was a phenomenon. I um. First of all, I was by myself. There was no one with me. Oh. No helpers, no guitar players, no bass players. I had said goodbye to my mom when they led me into the helicopter that was to take me to the field from Bethel. And uh, I 
I was in terror from that, from the moment I looked down and I asked the pilot, what is that? And he said, that's people. Wow. How could that be people? It's, it's, it's too much. <laughs> you know, It's too much. It must be. A, and, and then I realized that he pointed to the, the, the stage that was like a, a football field size stage. I had never been on anything bigger than a, you know, maybe a 20 by 20, you know, stage. And uh, I had never performed in front of any more than maybe 500 people in my whole life. And so the terror was mounting all day long. And uh, every once in a while, someone would come in to my tent and say, you're on next. And then nothing. And then <laughs> I'd hear somebody else singing and I knew it wasn't me. <laughs> so here we go. Okay. And another three hours would go by. Oh, and I, I mean, I got, I went, um, I ventured outside my tent thinking maybe there's a way to get out of here. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I walked out and I started heading toward the field and a sort of hell's angel type guy said, where are you going? I said, oh, uh, and I, at this point, I'm, I'm defending being there because <laughs> I, I shouldn't have been there if I wasn't an artist. So I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to sing. He says, sing? What are you, who are you? I said, oh, I have, I have a song that they play on WNEWFM <laughs> called Beautiful People. Yeah. And I, he said, oh, okay. Well, you better go. But where's your, where's your backstage pass? I didn't have a backstage oh, wow. oh, my God. And so I went back to my tent and didn't venture far from it for the rest of the day until I went on. Finally, at... Um, you know, right after Ravi Shankar. And it had started to rain, and I thought my prayers were answered, and that somehow everybody would go home. They're going to call the I game. Saved, <laughs> and I could go back to Europe and continue writing a film score that I was working on with John Campbell, an illustrious arranger, and that's how it would go. And what am I doing trying to be... I'm not a. I'm not a warm people. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not that kind of a person. Oh. And I'm much more behind the scenes. I thought, you know. So um, there I was in that predicament. And when they said you're on next, I, other than this explanation, I can't think of anything else. I wasn't stoned, <laughs> believe it or not. I was probably. One of the only three people you know, <laughs> at Woodstock who weren't, and I left my body. I, I I was not in my body, and I I watched myself. I can almost see the direction I was on my my shoulder here. <laughs> I was looking at myself walking. I walked the plank. It looked like a plank. And I was sure it was my certain doom. And I was just not there. I was wow. safe. Was that the, I was that, sitting that, on front of 500,000 people and I returned. 
You were divinely propelled. Thousand people saw me do that. I always thought that's that's the phenomenon of me at Woodstock. Is it they true that that's where it. that's where the tradition of lighting a lighter, you know, your bic lighter when you did. Uh, when, when when it rained and there were candles in the rain and uh, apparently legend says that that was the first time that was ever done at a concert and then it would That's happen what forever. I heard yeah that um it wasn't of course it was candles because mm-hmm. the hog farm collective <laughs> uh, wavy gravy I think yep. was passing out thousands of candles and he there was some inspirational uh who who did it? But one of the MCs went on stage and said, "You know, if you keep your candles lit, you'll keep the rain away, or something like that." But I, I didn't memorize it, but I absorbed it. Mm-hmm. And leaving Woodstock, I had the the anthemic part of "Candles in the Rain" was rolling around my head. Wow. That's what that's what I wanted to talk to you about because your your songs were not just hits, they were anthems, Candles in the Rain. I can imagine you, although I haven't had the pleasure of seeing you in concert, I can imagine that when you're in concert and you get the first four bars out, the audience suddenly explodes into singing the song for you because those are anthemic songs, especially Candles in the Rain. And look what they've done to my song, Ma. Those are are like crowd-enticing songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm... I love I love that when people start singing, you know, with me. It's, it's like, wow, you know this song. This is incredible, you know. Well, when you when- sometimes, um, I don't want to, you know, if you have it, you want to ask me something. No, I please continue. <laughs> oh no! So I, I um, sometimes it's the most amazing things that it's not just the content that accompany. Uh, people's experience with your song sometimes it's just the where it was and where they were mm. what they were doing mm-hmm. and there was a, about 25 years after i wrote candles in the rain um i was doing a show and the whole two first uh, sections were booked by a person and the promoter said he really wants to meet you after the show he has a very special story it turns out he was a uh, head of a platoon that was lost behind enemy lines in vietnam oh my and they were sure to be shot down i mean they were and they were lost and they could they had not no signal or anything but Candles in the Rain happened to be eight minutes long and they were playing it at the base and they followed that signal to safety. So he named his first daughter Melanie. Oh my God, that's a great story. They met me after a whole family. You know, I felt, my God, you know, here, here it was. Had nothing to do with the inspirational message, but every year they got together, the the guys in the platoon got together and celebrated and played Candles in the Rain. Oh, and he named on. his first daughter Melanie. I'm so crying. sometimes it's things like that that it has nothing to do with what you wrote. It has just to do with logistics. It's sort of like giving birth to a child. This is 
being is going to go out into the world and have its own have its own impact and its own story. So when when you write a hit record at the age of 18, those words become more than some dreamy idealistic thoughts you scribbled into a journal page. You've immortalized them and do you think uh, uh, that you're more likely to live words that you sing regularly? Do they become more of a, a daily prayer? Like beautiful people. A daily what? A daily prayer, sort of like beautiful oh, oh. people. It's just like it's it's a it's an incredibly profound thought. And you've yeah. given it and you've given it a melody and so you repeat it and it becomes maybe more of something that you're able to live. Um, I think that things become bigger with the with the power of people mm. communicating back to you mm-hmm. like I, when when i first started i wasn't melanie you know i was just a shy strange person and i was awkward and i didn't feel worthy of being well known or anything and i didn't feel particularly talented or pretty or um, so I always wondered, you know, like why, but the more I performed, um, in front of people, the more I was, uh, fortified in some mm-hmm. way and became who I was. And it's so I, funny, I people's misperception of themselves when they're younger, I, because I, I spent most of my twenties wanting to hug you. I can't believe you didn't oh. feel attractive. <laughs> And the second thing I want to say is those are the coolest glasses frames I've ever seen. Please send me your optician's name. My, my what? Your glasses frames. I love your glasses frames, which has nothing to oh, do with anything. Oh, thank you. But I love them. Yeah, I just got these. Thanks a lot. Can I just say something uh, uh, to, to to further explain the iconic nature of Candles in the Rain? There are only two songs that went on to great status that came out of Woodstock, and that was Joni Mitchell's Woodstock, and she wasn't even there, but Crosby, Stills, and Nash made a hit out of it, and then she made a hit out of it, but then your Candles in the Rain, those were the two that sort of explained the vibe of that moment. But I think think what really um, made your your recording of that so uh, uplifting and spiritual was the Edwin Hawkins singers. Oh, I know. That was, that's a story too. Can we hear um, it? Yes, I was, um, well, a funny thing, my, my husband, who was the record producer, had produced everything that I ever recorded, all the hits and more, and he said, Melanie, call it Woodstock. I said, no, it's got to be called Laydown or Candles in the Rain. It's got to have something to do with the song. I mean, I, I don't want to call it Woodstock. It, and everybody said, call it Woodstock, call it Woodstock. Yeah. <laughs> and, and somebody else did that. Mm. <laughs> but... um I, I just couldn't do it. I, I just said, no, it has to be called Candles in the Rain. They made me put the parentheses afterward and call it at least Lay Down. Mm-hmm. has to be there in the title somewhere. So that's how it, it got presented is Candles in the Rain, Lay Down. And uh, with no mention of Woodstock whatsoever, it was just that's what it was. It was Woodstock. So um, I had... Uh, thought because Buddha Records at the time had the Edwin Hawkins singers. And I said, oh, wouldn't it be great Mm -hmm. if they would sing the lay down part with me? That would be so amazing. And Peter, who was, you know, he had 
no qualms about talking and reaching out to anybody, yeah. called Edwin Hawkins and said, I had a song that um, he, they, I would really love them to sing. And Edwin Hawkins said, oh, well, we really sing uh, only non-secular music. Mm-hmm. You know, we ha- we does it have God in it? And well, it I, sort of does. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or does it have Jesus in it? No, not really. And uh, does it have, I said, but it's very spiritual. But when he said no, I had talked to him on the telephone and he said, I'm afraid, you know, I'm sure it's a wonderful song. And it was very kind and sweet, but we couldn't possibly do that because we only do Lord's music. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. And I figured that's no. Well, we, Peter and I were out recording in San Francisco and um, the Edwin Hawkins singers, as it happens, were down the street in, uh, oh, I don't remember, a, a near nearby town. <laughs> and um, we went, Peter said, Edwin Hawkins wants to do it. I said, really? He said, no. I, I, I know, but he, he really wants to hear it. I said, oh, okay. So we went to the auditorium. They were in a high school gym auditorium. A place, you know, and they so, had a hit. They had "Oh Happy Day" was a hit. That was a, like a top ten hit. That was a major hit, yeah. yeah. But um, and that was a whole different universe as far as the, you know, radio could play anything. You mm-hmm. know, it could just it was all over the place. But um, so I I opened the door. They're they're in the middle of singing something, and I opened the door, and they all like stopped. You know what? What's who? What? Who's that? <laughs> and I looked at Peter. And I said, "You didn't tell them, did you?" Oh. So he he surprised the Edwin Hawkins singers and Edwin Hawkins himself um, with me and my guitar. And he said, "Oh, come on, come on, we'll go down." And so he ran ahead. I'm at the door. Like I can't believe he did this to me. <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, he ran down, and I see Edwin Hawkins going, no, like, you know, gesturing, and Peter was gesturing, and uh, it was, I'm thinking, oh, my God, please get me out of here. This is so (laughs) embarrassing. I can't believe this. 46 huge, beautiful voices, and me, one little white girl, going to go sing songs to them. Oh, no, 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 I don't think so. (laughs) So, um but sure enough, Peter starts waving me. Come on, come on, you know. Um, so I I went down the aisle of the auditorium, and uh, they, you know, were quiet for a minute. And then I, I sat down, and I started to sing the song. And by the second time I sang the chorus, they were singing with me. <gasps> and Edwin Hawkins up his hands and went well what can you do so we, oh. we did it and uh it was just the, the most magical recording session i've ever ever done yeah it's a really spiritual song even though you didn't address god or jesus personally it's a really no. quite a beautiful very very uplifting spiritual song yeah a lot of people told me they became born again christians and all kinds of I things because that. of that song but um 
Yeah, no, it was absolutely amazing. And the reason it went on for eight minutes is because Peter wouldn't let it stop. Mm-hmm. He kept doing that universal, you know, keep going, keep going. <laughs> and um, and we kept going because it was it was magic. It was absolutely, everybody mm-hmm. was having the time of their life. I'm trying to think of the name of the conga player. He was uh, the conga player for Santana, but it'll right. come to me. Um okay. He uh, he was he was on the session. Ugh. Edwin Hawkins was playing keyboard piano, and it was me and my guitar, and that was it. So, what was the studio setup? Were they all gathered together? How many mics were down? We were in the same room, and I was singing my lungs out. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! How beautiful! I mean, it's just reverent. That piece of music is it, just extraordinary. It just moves you. It, it, it never stops moving you. Every listen, it just moves you. And there's a great YouTube video of you guys are performing it. I don't know if it's in the Netherlands or somewhere with a... Oh, yeah, that was Holland, right? A lot of very straight-looking white folks. And yeah, it's like an IBM sales yeah, yeah. meeting looking at my <laughs> it's audience. It's an IBM sales <laughs> meeting. <laughs> so I would love to hear how you met Peter because he has such an instrumental role in, in your life and in your, in your heart. Yeah. Well, it was... Um, I was... I had run away from home mm-hmm. when I was in my last year of high school. And my father had visions of me becoming, uh, I don't know, a debutante or something, you know, <laughs> have a coming out party. It was so not me that, um, but, you know, he had dreams. My father had big dreams about his daughter mm-hmm. and that was me. And uh, he was, determined that I was going to graduate and go to college and then meet, you know, the right person (laughs) and do those things that the right people do. And um, I had no desire. I had such a hard time in with uh, traditional standard school. I, I, I just wanted to graduate and get out. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he just wouldn't hear of it. And so I ran away from home. They didn't support your musical career at all or have a sense that you had a talent that you wanted to No, develop? no. It was before, you know, there was a time when parents were very sensible about <laughs> d- d- advising their children on sensible things to do, <laughs> like become a dental technician, you know, <laughs> and how about academia, you know, an archaeologist, <laughs> how about a teacher, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, my, my parents were, you know, didn't want me to have a hard life. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was a hard life. Being a performer is not easy. Uh, when I was, became fir- successful, and I had children, the last thing I wanted them to do was be you know, music business people, music industry people. I didn't want them to have to go through some of the stuff I went through. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, yeah, Layla, be an archaeologist. <laughs> Jordy, no, you don't want to be a singer and a songwriter. You, <laughs> right. you might want to do something else. All right, um, how do you meet Peter? Let's get back to Peter. Oh, but Peter, thank you so yes. much. Him. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, anyway, he was... Um, he was the um, had just been hired by Hugo and Luigi. Now I was going to an acting audition because I 
the le- the reason I was digressing that way is because my father decided what kind of a school when he went to get me in. I had ran away to California and he went to get me. He said, okay, I, he realizes I'm serious. <laughs> I don't want to go to college. What would you do? You can't just not go to school. And so I, I we thought maybe music school, but it turned out that uh, Juilliard and the, the traditional music education, this was before they had music business classes. Mm-hmm. You know, this was before they taught people the, the ins and outs of the record industry and things. This was strictly, you were, you read music, you new theory and you applied to Juilliard Mm -hmm. and I was I wasn't qualified so I knew that wouldn't happen and so we uh he's how about acting school and I thought well maybe um um so I went and applied and auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and I got in and I went to, to through their program and graduated. And you go for auditions. You're supposed to, but again, I was an introvert. I had roommates, and they all went to auditions, and they would read the trade papers, you know, and see who was casting for what. And I just never saw anything that was even a slight possibility. <laughs> but one day, there was an ad for. Uh, they needed a girl who played the guitar. Now, yeah. this is, again, one of those very strange things because girls didn't really play guitars yet. So, okay, they needed a girl who played the guitar, and the name of the play was um, Dark of the Moon. And it was a very esoteric play that I, w- I was very familiar with. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how or why, but it was a uh, part for a girl named Barbara Allen, and I even knew that song from uh, probably Joan Baez. <laughs> and so I went to this audition. I felt like, you know, this is a calling. Mm-hmm. This is some sign <laughs> from the universe telling me that I can, I should go and audition for this. So I did. And then when I got there, I, I was already living back at my ho- uh, parents' house in New Jersey. And when I got to... Um, uh, New York, I realized I had the building number, but I didn't have the office number. Uh, now I go into the real building, you know, the real building, yeah. oh, wow. brass, beautiful deco building. Yeah. And there's a doorman there and he, he probably has what they would call today Tourette syndrome <laughs> because he would, he would, and he was with epaulettes and a hat. And he would tip his hat and say, good morning, Mrs. Murphy. Good morning, Mr. Smith. And 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 then after he would say it, he would go, fuck, I didn't wreck him. And I, I watched this, him do this several times because I was going to go up to him and ask him if he knew where the Directors Guild of New York or something were so that I could go to my audition and be on time. And he, he uh, just... With the corner of his eye, he would keep looking at me, and I was I was actually afraid of him. So, but eventually, I realized if I don't get help and directions, I'm not going to be able to um, 
get to this audition and being on time, as you know, is so important. <laughs> so I um, finally, there was a lull in the traffic of in and out people of the morning. And I went in up to, up to him and I said, do you know where they're auditioning for Dark of the Moon? And he looked at me and it was one of those Rod Sterling moments. <laughs> you know, everything went quiet. And he looked at me really intense. And he said, go to room 511. <laughs> They're always doing weird things there. <laughs> so I just sailed past him, pressed the elevator, went to the fifth floor, found 511. And it was an office of two music publishers, Hugo and Luigi. And I, I went in and there was Joyce in the front of the reception. And at that point, you know, this was before fancy, mm. <laughs> I guess. Everything was like green filing cabinets, you know, institution, green filing cabinets. And Joyce at a, a very traditional desk and no frills of any kind. And it said Hugo and Luigi Publishing, and I knew that couldn't be the place. And I said, do you know where they're auditioning for Dark of the Moon? And and she looked at me like I was an alien, you know, from outer space. And, and I said, I mean, I have to be there and I'm late. If I'm not there, I'm gonna, not gonna get the part. I know I'm, and I started to cry. <laughs> and she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have the directory of the offices here, and she's looking at She said, it's the Directors Guild. Oh, okay, here, go here. And but while I was in the office, um, well, the, anyway, I went, I knew I was reading for the part. They had me read with several people. They had me come back after lunch. They had me come back again, and I knew that I had the part. Ooh. I absolutely knew it, um, and I played the song Barbara Allen and it, I knew I had the part. I was so excited. I went back to thank Joyce for helping me and I told her I think I got the part and um, I was, that's very nice and in comes Hugo and Luigi mm -hmm. and I have a guitar because I was supposed to audition for a girl who played the guitar. Sure. So uh, they said, oh, Joyce, what does she want? Do you want an audition? And I went, Oh no, I, I'm an actress. <laughs> and um, they said that's that's okay. You you sing? I said yeah yeah I I do. Um, and he, he said Joyce, set her up for Thursday. <laughs> so I went back on Thursday, and um, they had me sing. Uh, it, I opened the door of their inner office, and it was all like Louis the Fourteenth gilt <laughs> desks and chandeliers. And the carpet was like two inches deep. And I'm walking into this museum, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a cross between a museum and, and the Castro convertible showroom. <laughs> it, was just some, it was like gaudy and excessive and gold everything was gold and um they were very interested in impressing me and 
He said, yeah, we have this lamp. If you do this, <laughs> it went on. It's like 19th century this, Trump in there. It goes off. Yeah. Mm. And said, wow. <laughs> That's really special. Yep. <laughs> but um, I mean, I really didn't know what this was. And I didn't know why I was there. So I sang. They said, so do you, you write songs? I said, yeah, I write songs. And I wrote, I sang them a song I had. Uh, just written, it was called Mama Mama, and um, I had written another one. And now they're looking, they're, they're on, their desks are facing each other this way, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. This way. Okay. <laughs> and I am um, sitting here between the two. Between the two, okay. Facing desks. And I can see them like rolling their eyes and kind of looking at each other oh, like, God, that's wow, this is pretty weird, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, that after I sang a few songs, I figured that they don't like me and I feel really funny. So um, I'm getting up to go and I strap my guitar on my back. Um, again, any self-respecting writer didn't have a guitar case mm. that was definitely a juilliard thing you know okay. <laughs> had, it, it was i was definitely more of the strap the guitar over my shoulder i was getting ready to leave they said look uh we just hired a producer his name is peter shakarik you thought i'd never get here right uh, <laughs> so, here we are <laughs> yeah. so uh, we his name is peter shakarik and um we're writing a Broadway show. Now, little did I know, I mean, they had written hits for Elvis. You know, they had uh, Fools Rush In. Wow. You know, they, they had written for uh, Jimmy Rogers, and they used Jimmy Rogers. And I, I knew none of this. I knew it didn't, you know, I didn't know anything of, of backstories of the music industry or anything. So um, they said, yeah, they hired Peter Shakarik. He's coming in next week, and maybe he'll he can work with me. But um, they were way too busy because they're writing a Broadway show. And I said okay, and so I came back and I met Peter. Now Peter was in his office, and I walked in, and there was a piano and a desk and a couple of chairs. And I sat down. I started singing my songs, and halfway through. Uh, one of the songs, Peter jumped up and he ran into the office of Hugo and Luigi and I heard him saying, oh, she's really, have you, did you sign her? Have you signed her yet? And they said, no, she sounds like she's singing like a, underwater or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and he said, no, no, there's something really here. And I heard him, you know, and so then he came back and he's, he's listening to some more songs. He said, you wrote that? You wrote that? And I, yeah, you know, this is this is the first time anybody's, other than my mother, you know, had reacted Aww. to how, what I had written, mm -hmm. and um, I, I, I didn't, I never had experienced this kind of enthusiasm, and of course, um, of course, well, <laughs> he was going to Atlantic City that night to produce the work on a production with. Um, I don't know who it was, Sammy, Sam Cook or something. Wow. <laughs> um, and, and so I was, uh, he said, you want to come? <gasps> I didn't even hesitate. Sure. <laughs> Good. 
I did. We we um, and we never spent a, a night afterward away from each other. Just about. It's so interesting because this, this story that you're telling is like this odyssey towards someone who gets me. You know, we're all looking for that person who gets we're, us. We're totally. Yeah. The person who gets you. Yeah. And I think that's the the thing with over these years, my career, of course, as far as being <laughs> highly visible or anything, I, I didn't exactly play the industry game, mm-hmm. you know, um, Again, I told people what I thought, which I maybe could have done more diplomatically. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, your I husband, Peter. Anything, but I just, I, I didn't understand anything, but what you what you felt is what you expressed. Well, that, 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 that uh, I, I found both sides of your life uh, very um, compelling that way. Peter um, sort of... Uh, guided you through show business did the business part of it was your biggest advocate helped you with the business and the booking and the in the recording sessions and then he passed away very suddenly and then you had to have this rebirth where you were responsible for your own future and your own present and something you'd never done but you showed that it could be done after that which was kind of an inspiring um um remaking of yourself yeah no i i definitely was thrown into the deep end and um, amazingly, uh, I'm still doing it. But I, I, I thank my people who support me and get me. Mm-hmm. In fact, can I tell you I have a Patreon? Of course um, you may. Please. I, my son wrote this out. I don't know if you can read it. Okay. <laughs> we'll put that in our show notes. It's um, so it's. Great. <laughs> Yeah. You don't like my sign? No, I love your sign, but some people are in the car listening and that we don't want them to oh, cause in the an accident. Car. Well, just pull over. Yeah. <laughs> but Melanie has a Patreon. If you go to Patreon, well, I can just ask Carrie. Carrie, your manager is here. If you go to Patreon and type Melanie, will you find Carrie's like looking at me like, don't ask me that. I'm like, that's a bow question. <laughs> but if we go to Patreon yeah. and t- type, you know, your name, hopefully we'll find you, but I'll have it in the show notes. It's- yeah, www.patreon.com slash forward slash Melanie Sofka. Melanie Sofka, everybody. That's, that's my maiden name. Yeah, that is your secret password. All right, and, I, I want to yeah. talk about stuff before it gets too late here. Okay. I, I think Brand New Key is just the most fanciful and beautiful and hummable and and lovely light song that you do, otherwise known as the roller skate song. Yeah, uh, a gorgeous the tune. song. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's got a really fascinating origin story that includes fasting, hallucinating, and McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us the story about yeah. creating that song. Yeah, this is, it's pretty wild. I was, a, I was a, you know, always having... I wanted to to be pure, you know, I wanted to know who my authentic self was. And um, I started reading uh, the Arnold Errett, who was one of the fathers of fasting and vegetarian. And uh, so I, I started studying nutrition and from different angles, you know, and, I decided I was going to be a vegetarian 
And I was a vegetarian, but I was doing terribly. <laughs> I was not doing well as a vegetarian. You're a I lapsed vegetarian. Sick. That's what I am. <laughs> I, I, well, I think it has to do with blood types. And oh. I'm an O, which is the original, you know, eat your dinosaur and just be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I was, um, you know, not doing well. I went to uh, Dr. Bernard Jensen. I had a big concert. In fact, it was it was uh, one of the first Carnegie Hall concerts, and this was so important. And I came, was started coming down with something like, mm. you know, coughing and throat, and I kept getting sick as a vegetarian. I just wasn't doing well. And again, you know, it was before people realized what well, you need certain nutrients if you're going to be a vegetarian i didn't know anything i just if it wasn't a vegetable i if it wasn't a meat i ate it you know it was if it was a nut or a cheese or a bread i'd go to mcdonald's and or, or uh, not mcdonald's but whatever fast food yeah i guess it was mcdonald's still and um you know i'd order the, the burger without the burger <laughs> and uh, you know it's not a it's not highly nutritious you know <laughs> when you eat stuff like that but i was you know trying to find my real self and so i was a vegetarian not doing well went to bernard jensen who was in escondido california mm-hmm. and i had a couple of months before this concert and he said um found out what blood type I was, etc. And so he put me on a fast. He said, you know, first you have to cleanse, detoxify. So I was I was on a fast and on this um twenty seven days on nothing but distilled water. What? And oh, I I oh, was, yeah. you know that's starvation. Talk about I was seeing God for sure, you know, <laughs> after 27 days, he said, Melanie, I think it's time to break the fast. <laughs> and I went, no, no, I think, I think I'm almost there. You know? <laughs> and I uh, said, yeah, but you might be a little too close to there. <laughs> so um, so he, he strongly told, told me I needed to break the fast. And how you do this is um, you, you know, very slowly on a teaspoon of some kind of juice or a little, little mashed up, grated, partially cooked carrot. You know, little by little, you introduce food into your system. And it was time to leave the Hidden Valley. It was called Hidden Valley Ranch. Nothing to do with the salad dressing. <laughs> It was, um, that's what he called his ranch. And I was ready to leave. And he said, now your perfect diet is going to occur to you. And now because of your, he he did things like personology, I think it was called, where he read the shape of your skull and, and looked into your irises. That was iridology and could see where your weak points are and your strong points. And he said that my perfect diet was going to occur to me because I was so cleansed Mm. and so purified Mm -hmm. that I would know Mm -hmm. uh, what I should eat. And he had a strong 
feeling that I should not be a vegetarian, <laughs> that I needed animal substance, he said, because you're a high, <laughs> you know, highly wound person. So um, <laughs> you need um, animal substance to combat. Because during the fast, like, I, I, I would... I I walked past a TV screen, um, and Marcus Welby was on, and I started to cry. <laughs> so he, you know, there was definite signs that the emotions were really right there. So um, he said, "You're going to know what your perfect diet is." Went home. I love antiques. I was on my way to a a flea market. It was English Town, New Jersey. And it was early, early morning. It was the it was really the authentic flea market where people would bring their stuff and put it on a table and I would have my flashlight and I'd say, What's your dealer's price? you know? Wow. And and uh come home with a big sack full of stuff that I was going to do something with someday. Uh-huh. And on the way home, I was hungry, and we passed something, and it smelled really, really good. <laughs> and I thought, well, Dr. Jensen said that I would know what to eat because <laughs> this is a perfect diet for me. And I thought, we pulled into a McDonald's, <laughs> and I got the, the whole thing. I got the... The burger and the fiberglass milkshake and the whole work, <laughs> the fries and everything, and the um, I I was loving this. Now, can you imagine after twenty seven days, with nothing but water? I was going to say it's a, it's amazing your body didn't easy. suffer like toxic shock or something. <laughs> you would think that what what could ha- you you might explode, you know, from something like this. But I felt great, and I was like. Oh my God, I love this. This is perfect. I'll live on McDonald's for the rest of my life. And and no sooner had I finished that last bite of burger that this, I got a pan of peril, this case. And uh, it was in my head. And I had my little hop guitar, you know, this little small thing that I always put in the car with me. And I started playing yeah. the song. When I got home, I was sitting at the edge of the bed and Peter heard it and he said, what's that? I said, oh, I don't know. It was just some silly thing came to my head after I had my hamburger. And he said, no, play that part again. And I started playing it. He said, Melanie, that's a hit. And I looked at him, I went, no, (laughs) no, if this song is a hit, I'm doomed to be cute. Oh. <laughs> People plug their own connotations into it. It seemed to have like a salacious subtext. You know, the. the I, you know, I, people said that. No, what I, I meant was, was. Really, I was really recollecting growing up and, and my dad holding the back of the, the, the bicycle while I was learning, you know, with the training wheels. And, and then I'd, Are you holding on, Dad? Are you holding on? And. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but his voice was becoming further and further. And as soon as I realized he, he wasn't holding on, I would fall. And then I I had a roller skating catastrophe down Suicide Hill. Um, that was in Astoria. 
and there was this hill that people called Suicide Hill. Um, and if you roller skated down, most likely you were going to crash at the end. And I did, and I broke my new front tooth. Oh. I brand, my mother was so proud of my teeth. Oh. I was so afraid to go home <laughs> and oh. tell her that I broke my front, my beautiful, perfect front tooth. Oh, my God. And but I had to do it, you know, of course. Um, they were going to notice it was, you know, chipped at an angle. And uh, well, I, that, that is the same thing to happen to your big fan over here. My sister, Amy, she bounced this really heavy ball too, like too well. And it popped her right in the teeth. She had that. So I'm sure it looks like they've corrected it with excellent dentistry. You know what? <laughs> this tooth causes me all kinds of problems. Oh. I had it. I had a cap eventually, and then I was in a, an amusement park in Vienna. They said, where do you want to go, to the museum? You had a day off, you know. You want to go to the museum or the, the park where they filmed, I think it was called The Third Man mm -hmm. with Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I picked the amusement park. Sure. And I went on the uh, bumper cars. Yeah, uh-oh. And I think I was like the only other person except this one kid who looked like Dennis the Menace. Oh, you know? we don't like him. And he he's, was heading right. At, he was determined to hit me head oh, on, and he did. He's trouble. And that's how I hit my front tooth. I was, I was supposed to go to Romania the next day, and I had a lot of slivivits <laughs> yeah. because I was in agony, oh. pain. And then they, they put something in my front tooth. But it's been an ongoing saga. In fact, I'm, I have to go and do something else. <laughs> yeah, it looks like whenever you chip a front tooth, it requires maintenance throughout, you know, the remainder of your time on Earth. I know, yeah. huh? Yeah, but you look beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful smile, and it's a part of your story. And we have the roller skate song to celebrate. Yeah, so. I got the roller skate song. You know, Randy over and above B. your musical talent, you, you've been very involved in humanitarian causes. You are the UNICEF ambassador and spokesperson. You are currently the president. I think you're still the president of the Nashville chapter of United for Human Rights, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the local, regional, national and international level. Describe the work that that organization does. Oh, well. It's um, it's one woman's uh, dream to make the music business more habitable to artists. <laughs> I, I think that's like it's it's such a shame because you know artists are. I mean, I'm not talking about people who want to be famous. That's not an artist, but it, it has turned into an industry where. Um, people who are really good at social media and mm -hmm. getting their name out and their face known or whatever, they can have a really substantial career mm -hmm. with uh, their basic gift is they know how to promote, right. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm talking about people who need to create and express themselves and, have people get it, you know, yeah. those kind of artists um, usually get taken advantage of because they have to do it no matter what, mm -hmm. you know, and there are 
people who realize this and take advantage of it. Absolutely. So um, I, um, I had, I don't exactly receive the, um, well, I, I put it like this. I earn a lot of money. I just don't happen to receive any of it. Interesting. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Is that what so, the basis um, for your song? That, that's pretty much the theme of let's, let's get some, I mean, with the people who make the product that resonates with people, they need to be compensated. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that why you wrote, look what they've done to my song, Ma? Is that what you were trying to suggest? No, no that was, um, I was in the studio um, and, you know, Peter and I hardly ever saw eye to eye oh. on how a song should go. Okay. I, I was, he was much more, let's make this a hit, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I was, um, but that doesn't exactly, you know, project what the song is about and it should be slower and it should be more bluesy. Like if we, if I had done Brand the way I wanted to do it, nobody would have ever heard it, it mm-hmm. you know, because it was basically it was a, a blues song. And um, but when he heard that that line, he just knew that he could do something with it to cross it over to the next uh, place. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that was a, and it was a, an era of it was before uh, there was a term called singer songwriter. Sure. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even referred to as that. It was a, I was called the female Bob Dylan, <laughs> no, yeah. because there weren't singer songwriters. I think it wasn't you, you know a you, thing yet. You created you know, a Bob genre. Dylan you don't even realize it while you're so, doing it. You don't even realize it, but you were cr- you were creating a genre. Yeah. Huh. And um, yeah, I I I always thought that I I I'm, I'm in search of a genre. You know. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm still searching for my genre. No, did I, did, did um, you ever think about doing what Carol King did and doing maybe a Broadway presentation of your hits in some sort of a musical arc, a, 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 a dramatic arc? It seems like that would funny be Funny you should ask, Fritz. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Um, I, I, I may have made enemies unbeknownst to myself, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> there have been people who suggest that, um, like Chris Novoselic of Nirvana said I was carefully airbrushed out of history. Oh um, God. And for, maybe because Peter and I were our own entity, you know, we, we, we had a, uh, our own thing and we, yeah, your own uh, label for one thing, right? So you were doing yeah, your own business. Yeah, for our, our own label. That was a smack in the face to a lot of people. I think the you other know? thing was when the when the rock radio genre sort of hit the airwaves, that they knew that their audience was predominantly young men, and they felt that you were a female, that you know, young young women loved Melanie. They didn't, all the men who loved you just weren't raising their hands amongst their buddies and saying hey let's put on some melanie you know but they did love you i i had gay men that was it awesome (laughs) awesome so um it was um i had a lot of men but you know uh they're not the you know 
guys who went to the football game or anything. Not <laughs> out loud, not out loud to their friends, but they had the right. Record. Yeah. So before we go, I would love to hear about your duet with Miley Cyrus, because you you are an inspiration presently and into the future on, on young uh, young performers who now have the ability with the Internet to find you and fall in love with you. So tell us how that came to be, your duet with Miley. That was incredible, really. Um, she had uh, done a backyard session um, where uh, I, she was getting very much more granola, mm-hmm. you know, Loving in her it. Uh, image. And um, she sang, look what they've done to my song while with her guitar. And I thought, wow, she really is good. She's good. Yeah. I really like that. So mm-hmm. I, I, um, sent a message over to her that I heard her version. I really loved it. And she responded and said, look what they've done to my song. Ma is her life's life song. And I thought that's incredible. And, and so she said, we have to do something together. And, uh, right after that, you know, she got on a wrecking and took off her clothes and, all hell broke loose. And, mm. uh, and when she said, we have to do something together, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, what will I wear? <laughs> <laughs> Are you fitting so, me for my wrecking ball? <laughs> wow. And I don't think I could do that. So, um, but anyway, you know, we eventually, she said, I'm doing this series where I'm getting together with different performers. I'd love you to, to do it. And we can sing some songs together pick some songs that we could do. I definitely want to do look what they've done to my song. Mm -hmm. So we did that. My son was on the show and we went to her house and um, she says, it's going to be real casual, you know, backstage, like back backyard, you know, just real casual. I'm picturing, you know, a couple of guys with cameras. They had more equipment than Terminator 2 (laughs) (laughs) in that backyard. And, I'm doing a, a song with Miley Cyrus. This is really a big, yeah, it's you know, a B, so, it's a BFD. Um, but we did it. It was a lot of fun. She was very, very sincere um, in her appreciation uh, for the, the song. And mm. I, I think she's a very talented person. Absolutely. She is. And she has a similar quality in her voice. She has that rasp and that tearing into it kind of emotion. Yeah. She's having a my, moment right now with big flowers. That's a huge hit. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She has a, she has a huge hit with flowers now. That that single she has now that was number one in England for like two months in a row, and now it's breaking in the wow. United States. Yeah, great. Good for her. All right. So, so before we wrap up, Melanie, what should we know? Where else should we go beyond a Patreon? I know you have a YouTube channel. What else should we know? Um, well, I'm working on uh, new songs. The um, the, the lockdown could not have, I, I didn't know how old I was. You know that line, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Sure. I didn't. <laughs> I was. Just, I always worked. Even after Peter passed, I just kept doing the shows he booked. And then after that, I would just, anything anybody came across my path, I would do. And then up until the lockdown, that's the way it went. And then it was a dead halt, mm. and I had a suitcase packed. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to go somewhere and do, and it didn't happen, of mm. course. And then more weeks went by. And we flattened the curve and still kept going. And there was there was 
people were going out of business and yeah. the I did you know there were just every there was so much um <laughs> meddling and so much um to keep performers like me off the streets they basically shut down for a couple of years and we navigated um online shows mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we started doing that and Bo Jared my son got really good at doing green screen mm -hmm. you know we could put me in front of the Taj Mahal there we go, <laughs> there we, go. we don't do that but but we could and um we did one where we just had my cat who passed away since so she was the center point center piece of the the show and uh, we just did online shows and we're working on doing um, a few of those and things never really got back to you know the way they were for me um but uh we wrote, i wrote a lot of songs mm. a lot of songs mm -hmm. and um we will be recording those and um i'd like to you know as soon as everything's done i'd like to send it out to you we would love so that. you can give me your you know email or oh, whatever i hope you will uh, are you doing shows do you have a desire to do shows you, you i know? i do i i just got um uh, when I, right before the new year i did um uh the tour of holland mm. it was it was pretty intense a lot of shows and um it, it was good because i didn't know if i could still do it you know mm -hmm. um again i felt like you know in the mummy's tomb when they <laughs> unwrap the thing and sh the mummy shrivels up. I felt <laughs> sort of like that. You know? oh, like, no. like I'm shriveling. No. I'm shriveling before my very eyes. Can I still do this? But I did. I did a whole tour and I, I, yeah, I'm ready to do more. But again, there's, um, there's the question of getting out there and my, stable points are not there anymore so right. so new ones um, will start emerging agencies of uh, doing tribute things and in fact i was booked to do a, a a show and i got there and every single band was a tribute act Whoa. except for me oh my so goodness. um when i got on stage i told the people i won in the state of new jersey the best Melanie tribute act. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're going to win. Just like Melanie. You're going to win every one of those you enter. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I right. don't know. I think I'm not, I'm too old to be Melanie. No, no, no you're, you're never, not. You are eternally <laughs> Melanie. All right. Here come our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, or we are at Media Path Pod. And on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast. Podcast community. You can find full video podcast episodes. Oh, wait. Wait. Oh, oh you have one oh, more. Okay. Wait. Interjection. I have to say this. Yeah. I'm doing a, a very new thing. I've never done this before. Yeah. Um, it's a big, um, what is it? Uh, what is it called? What is that called? Um, oh. An autograph signing thing, an oh, expo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the Melanie Con. Theater Expo in Parsippany. Uh, New, Jersey. New Jersey or New mm -hmm. York? New Parsippany. Jersey. Mm -hmm. New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Parsippany, New Jersey. The Schiller Theater, um, April 
27th, 28th, and 29th. All right, send me that. So or Carrie, Carrie, send Five me that, things. and I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> we'll so put everybody. that in the show notes, and yeah. we'll have billions Great. of people. I'm sorry to introduce no, you. No, no, happy no. too. You can say whatever. <laughs> no. no, it's all good. You can find full that video. That was amazing. You can find awesome. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating on Apple Podcasts and talk about us favorably on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Melanie. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise. And I would like to thank our studio audience, which consists of my sisters, Amy Palenker and Joanne Palenker. We are big crowd of people. Well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. 